0: Hey, Mike, how are you?
1: Terrific. And we've got a great show today. Our guest is the new chief communications officer at Cognizant, one of the world's leading professional service firms. And he worked with you at at GE, Jeff Demare. So we're looking forward to that. Smart guy. He is a smart guy. But first, the news. First item, Gary, you worked in local news. Mm -hmm. Uh, Local news has long been a source of trusted and objective news and information. But there was a recent expose that the New York Times did that raised a lot of questions about a specific network of like almost 1300 local, and I'm actually putting it in air quotes, (laughs) websites and newspapers run by this guy, Brian Timponi. And Timponi used to be a television reporter, and he's turned to kind of being this conservative business internet entrepreneur. And back in 2006, he founded a company called Journatic, which is kind of a mash between the word journalism and automatic. Hmm. And Journatic managed Trib Local, which was this hyper-local news branch, if you will, of the Chicago Tribune. They got paid by Hmm. the Chicago Tribune to basically report news for suburban neighborhoods. He did this work for other publications, other newspapers. other And, Mike, was this a
0: result of the Trib shrinking its traditional coverage and, and outsourcing it, sort of? I think it was a
1: couple of things coming together at once. One, a lot of local newspapers were... We're, we're falling by the wayside. The economics yeah, yeah. Didn't, didn't really make it work. And, and then also, I think it was a little bit of major newspapers deciding, you know, as that's happening, there's an opportunity for us. And I think the other side of this was also wanting to be relevant in those markets and not just be viewed as the big city newspapers that yep, doesn't yep. really care gotcha. about us. But anyway, this guy went on, uh, actually, This American Life. I think you're familiar with that Yeah, Oh, yeah. But back in, in 2012, he talked about journalistic, And one of the things that came out in the interview is that he was actually using some 300 freelancers wow. to produce these stories. But it would later also come out that a lot of these stories had fake bylines. And that some of the stories were directed and then created even outside the U.S. People were writing on it. And when the Chicago Tribune caught light of this, they suspended, they fired Timponi and his organization. And then a year later, Timponi pops up again. He's rebranded his organization. It's now Locality Labs.
0: Ah, so Uh, nice.
1: Yeah, yeah, isn't that? (laughs) Seems like it's Pleasantville. Yeah, Totally. And and, and so he's got a slightly different business model. And as the New York Times investigation points out, Republican operatives and public relations firms have been paying Timpany for articles in his outlets and directing the editorial content of those stories. Wow. So literally, buying space, but it's still, it looks like it's local. And this time, you know, Tim Pony essentially has cut out the middleman, created these online newspapers that pose as local news vehicles, but he makes money by delivering the news that politicians, businesses, PR firms are willing to pay for. So, so much for local news. Now, I wonder, you know, we live at a time, and you've talked about it a lot, where there's lots of polarization. We have an echo chamber around some of the national news broadcast organizations, Fox on one side, MSNBC mm-hmm. on the other. Uh, and now, seemingly... This is infiltrating the local market. And at first blush, this stuff looks local, but it's not quite local. As a former journalist, how do you feel about this? Is it inevitable, given the economic stress on local newspapers? And how should we think about transparency with these online outlets?
0: To me, it's just, this is part and parcel of the the fracture that we see in the country is that people are living in these bubbles, we've talked about that before, Mm -hmm. Mike, where they don't get any opinion other than the ones that they agree with, politically, economically, socially. And there are what they are called these news deserts Mm -hmm. uh, across the country that have been created by the collapse of local journalism. Uh, I looked it up, the University of North Carolina did a study this year and about 25% of all metro and community newspapers in the US, about 2100, have gone out of business since 2004. And hundreds wow. more have scaled back and are what you might call ghost newspapers, mm-hmm. where there really isn't much of a local reporting staff. And and this was the, these local newspapers were really the heart and soul of accountability in this oh, country.
1: Yeah. You yeah, know, you got I, the I, town I, council meetings, the school board meetings.
0: Yeah. And I, and I believe, I live in one of these places. We still have a paper, but it's it's a ghost i can see the attitudes that people have here locally politically particularly is that they can operate with some impunity mm-hmm. and and that there's there's nobody watching so this environment gives rise to things like locality labs right you know <laughs> where people are hungry for local news and and the cable stations have tried to fill in and the local tv but they're facing the same economic distress and it allows this disfigurement of the news mm. by people who have an agenda and it's why you see in our presidential election that was just concluded that people just don't trust anything that they see that they disagree with because they see so little of it you know and we see some we see some outlets too like the Sinclair broadcasting yep. network completely focused on one side of the political spectrum republican spectrum we need to solve this we need some kind of media literacy campaign. And there are people out there working on this now, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm beginning to be a little optimistic about it. At the same time, Mike, and I wanna ask you this question, mm-hmm. who's responsible,
1: <laughs>
0: who can help? Uh, yeah, so I, have you- a, I have a point of view, but I, wa- I wanted to ask you that.
1: Uh, yeah, I almost think it's, it's you know somewhere in the bowels of the PR industry and the marketing industry that there needs to be a response Yes. And there needs to be a a set of ethics that kind of say, you know, there's not going to be pay to play. Now, it becomes difficult. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're we've all, especially in the last decade, grown up around the table of peso where, Mm -hmm. you know, you got paid, (laughs) you've got earned, you know, you've got shared and you've got owned. And, you know, this begins to fuse a couple of these things together. Mm-hmm. So you have paid and earned, and it, <laughs> it looks like earned, but it's really paid, but we're not telling the world about this. Something has to move forward where people are kind of forced to take some kind of a pledge, I think, around transparency. Yes. And if something's going to be paid for, we need to somehow know that. And as a profession, I think that uh, we owe it to the people we work for to be straight and above board.
0: You know, at GE, we were one of the first to go out there with an owned platform and put some resources behind it. Right. I I got a lot of pushback from journalists, you know, Mm -hmm. skeptical and and sort Mm -hmm. of. But we were very transparent that this was produced in-house where it came from, what the perspectives were, and all that kind of thing. What was
1: the first one I remember? Because it was a model that a lot of us looked at. Yeah,
0: GE Reports was, and we did this this in the middle of the global financial crisis when it was hard to get our story out, Mm -hmm. and and not a criticism. It it was just tough, and we turned it into a news, um, you know, we tried to become a media company. Yeah. um, And and there are a lot of benefits to that, which I won't... Um, But I I do think there has to be some kind of, you know, pledge or whatever. And I do think what has sucked the money out of local news? Well, the tech companies have Facebook, and some others. This is a, I think, a fundamental societal need is to have a fourth estate, to have in a democracy, in a democracy, I think it's essential. And I think we have to look at it that way. And I know, Organizations like the Aspen Institute and others are trying to do something about this and restoring journalism literacy in in classroom settings, but we have a long way to go.
1: Yeah, well, and it's also hard in terms of the, still the economics uh, become very, very difficult, I think, in today's world and and how you do that. And, And that's why I think at the end of the day, what we need to continue to push for as communicators is a greater level of transparency so that the audience really knows where this is coming from. Now, that said, I mean, switching gears a little bit, <laughs> another item in kind of the recent news is sort of a story that that broke the, the last week of the election. And Gary, I'll take you back two years ago, back in 2018, I think it was September 2018, the New York Times pu- published an op-ed and it was titled The Quiet Resistance Inside the Trump Administration. It shook up Washington mm-hmm. uh, not only because the author was kept anonymous and that's how that that was the byline, but that it painted a picture of the Trump administration whereby senior officials were protecting the country from the president and and, and literally used words like the president's more misguided impulses the author wrote that the root of the problem is the president's amorality, his reckless decisions and erratic behavior. And then a year later, a book version of this with more details came out again from anonymous, (laughs) uh, titled a warning. And then right before the US elections, anonymous revealed himself on CNN to Chris Cuomo. As it turns out, anonymous is the former chief of staff to Department of Homeland Security Secretary Christian Nielsen. His name is Miles Taylor, and and he is now a CNN contributor. Now, some might think that what Miles Taylor did was heroic and necessary to hold the president and some people in the administration in check but why was it okay for miles taylor to be anonymous in calling out the trump administration while he still worked in it and why was it okay for the new york times to print it in the first place and what do you think miles taylor coming out in the you know in the closing days of the election And also becoming a paid CNN contributor. You know, there's this tension, you know, going back to our discussion around the Peso model and going back to our discussion around transparency. How do we weigh these things out?
0: I have a very strong opinion on this one, and I'll start working back on your questions on CNN. I don't know how you employ this person. And 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 this is this is why in August he was on the network he was on CNN and they asked him are you anonymous and he said absolutely not i wear a mask only for two things halloween and the pandemic so he was on just a few months ago on the network and lied uh, about this so from my and point he was of no view, li-
1: and he was no longer working in the White and,
0: House, and he was no longer working in the White House, the book was out all of that kind of thing. So I'll work my way back. And I, I don't think it's even close from a CNN standpoint, as to your question, Mike, your first one as to whether the Times should have published an anonymous and whether he should have written it. We need whistleblowers. Yeah, we, we need them. But it, it becomes more complicated, to me, knowing who he worked for and what Homeland Security was doing at the time, which is the separation of families at the border mm-hmm. of the immigrant families um, seeking asylum in the United States. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, says he, he should have outed himself at the time, resigned his position if he felt like he couldn't change that policy, which today remains one of his biggest objections to the Trump campaign. So I don't have much patience for Miles Taylor. Mm-hmm. I love the idea of, of whistleblowers coming forward. Mm-hmm. And whether it's in a Trump administration or a Biden administration mm-hmm. or in GE or in Cargill, mm-hmm. you want an open reporting environment in everything, in every important enterprise. And I just put him in the same basket, Mike, mm-hmm. as, you know, I'm, I'm starting to sound like Uh, left wing radio here or whatever but in the same basket with some of the other Trump folks John Bolton and others who didn't tell their story until there was a book deal and uh, if what the president was doing was so objectionable and Uh from Taylor's point of view clearly it was I think you had a responsibility to say it at the time and 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 associate your name with it I, I don't know what's your thought.
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, one can look at this and do a careful balance between profit and principle. And, you know, and and sure it is, you know, that we know that Trump doesn't suffer fools. Mm -hmm. And we also know, as Mitt Romney said this weekend, that the president has a relatively relaxed relationship with the truth, <laughs> um, that's a direct quote. Good way to put uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> all of that said, you know what's interesting is the rich tradition within the United States, I mean, we think of the Federalist Papers, right? And the Federalist yes. Papers purposely were not signed by Hamilton, by Madison, and, and, and why? because they were afraid that in the audience that they were putting this out in, they might be outed, that they might be targeted by Redcoats, that they also didn't want this friction between the South and the North in terms of one was from New York, one was from Virginia, to get in the way of what they were trying to shape here, which was to build support Mm -hmm. for the forging of a new nation. And so in the back of my mind, that resonates. And there may be times and there may be individuals where it does make sense for the good of the country, for the good of the overall, Mm -hmm. you know, public good to maybe not be totally out in the open yeah but i do have this problem with after he left after he had the book deal and then cnn also hiring him
0: yeah, exactly.
1: so 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 i'm with you but i i, I leave out this little kernel out here okay
0: that, i got gotcha. yeah, you yeah know, yeah
1: there there may be a time
0: I, I see it and look open reporting cultures in big oh. companies are essential
1: that Absolutely. people feel
0: feel Comfortable coming forward anonymously to point out things that may be going on. Who was, by the way, who was the who wrote the anonymous book about Clinton? But that was a journalist. Oh, Joe Klein. Yes.
1: Joe, Joe Klein. Klein.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. But that uh, okay. So that was a yeah. that was an outside in, and then became a, a novel, right? I I, I think right. it was. Yeah.
1: And and that one was to me even odder. In some yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Exactly. Yeah, you know, yeah. This is
1: a journalist.
0: Yeah. Hey, right. A yeah. <laughs> really That's good topic. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then kind of the last topic and and maybe where we are as a country and on this show we've talked about polarization and we've talked Mm -hmm. about how different sides are are messaging differently, you know, uh, the the closeness of the recent presidential contest Mm. underscores the polarization while Trump has been voted out of office. You still have Republicans holding an edge in the Senate. Looks like they'll be at 50-48 and we'll have two special elections to Mm -hmm. determine the balance in the U.S. Senate. Republicans also picked up seats in the House. So this is no matter where we end up, you know, Joe Biden is going to have a very gingerly, mm. you know, sort of situation to deal with.
0: Like a coalition and, government in, in, in well, Britain, in wonders. the UK, you know.
1: But as I was thinking and preparing for this show, I think of the times where you and I have worked for, you work for GE, I've worked mm-hmm. for a number of companies where there have been mergers and acquisitions. We've had major controversies with stakeholders that we didn't always see eye to eye with, and yet... In order to move forward, we had to do something with those those stakeholder groups. And we've been in situations where, you know, one's point of view or a CEO's point of view got mischaracterized mischaracter- yeah, yeah. in the process. I wonder if there's any lessons in that for the Biden administration and the, and the new president.
0: Listen, if there's ever if ever there's a time for a fresh start, this is it, right? Yeah. And I'll take it, I'll take it, Mike, because I think there are a lot of lessons. I'll take it from the merger and acquisition, let's say you're, you're merging or you're buying another company, and we did a lot of that, $100 billion worth of acquisitions when I was at GE. I always felt like the, the most important thing was to move fast, set out your priorities clearly and quickly, right up front. And, and Biden has begun to do that already, even though he's, it was just a few days since he was declared the victory, and, and stick with them those priorities and begin an engagement process with, in this case, the other party or mm-hmm. people maybe who didn't vote for him, that to me was always the key to making sure that culturally mergers and acquisitions worked mm-hmm. because distrust begins to build really quickly. Mm-hmm. And you, you've got 100 days to show who you are, what your culture is, and, and how you apply that in, in the day-to-day work. And so as a result, I always felt like the M&A process, you needed a strong leader, Mm -hmm. somebody who had influence uh, across the board, clear goals, deadlines, and you can't just let these things limp along. That's Mm -hmm. when mergers and acquisitions fail, when -hmm. you just let them sort of limp along and and delegate. And so I, I think for Biden, clearly he has to be at the top of this process, have a good transition team, keep it simple. Mike I'll give you an example. I was in a political transition back when I worked for Governor Pataki mm-hmm. when Cuomo was out, Pataki was in. And you know, it's hard.
1: Yeah. It's
0: hard. You know, you have to tell people to leave. <laughs> right? And yeah, and there's no
1: longer yeah, your office. <laughs>
0: right. And I would just say you develop a thing in politics where you know when the worm turns, it's you know, it's going to happen to you someday, right? Yeah. So, you know, treat people with respect, but let them know that Things are going to change.
1: Yeah. Well, in fact, I saw something over the weekend where someone published the letters from various presidents to the incoming president that they would leave in the Oval Office. And I, I almost wonder what the uh, Trump letter will look like.
0: <laughs> it may be a single letter or two, F-U, I don't know. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but I also buy into this notion that, that you've laid out, which is engagement, because I I have seen a number of acquisitions, usually with the company I was working for being the acquirer, those that seemed to not work as well as others were those in which the uh, acquired entity was never truly engaged. Yeah, exactly. uh, Where there wasn't a sense of understanding and there wasn't an opportunity for people to be heard and some sensitivity around respect relative to culture and to points of view and and my greatest hope is that Biden learning from that will, you know, we won't have a coalition government. That's not the nature yeah, exactly. of, of the U.S. But I think that uh, my hope is that from his years in the U.S. Senate, I do think that he has a real opportunity being a creature of the Senate to reach out and actually have conversations, make sure key players in the other party are being heard, but more importantly that the, the broad country is being
0: heard. Exactly. Who who has received the second most vote totals of any presidential candidate in history? Right. Right. And the Trump. answer is Donald Trump this yeah. in this election. And You know, after 2016, we thought, well, the Russians, we, you know, the Mueller, I I think people got distracted from why Donald Trump got elected, and and focused on other things and I hope the President elect Biden will reflect on that. And he seems like the perfect person being, you know, a man of a blue-collar background, you know, yeah. coming from a hard-scrabble kind of town to understand why so many people who are working class in this country mm-hmm. feel like the future is not for them. And it's just like a merger and acquisition where you know, you buy a company because you think it has value. Right. Right? And 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 letting people know that that's the case. Uh, we bought you because we think you're really good, and we we think together we're better. And I hope the president-elect spends a lot of time on that, those 70 million people
1: yeah.
0: in the first part of his presidency.
1: Yeah. Well, I think he has an empathetic soul.
0: Yes, yes. I
1: think he has a, a, a sense of the spirit of America and why we're all here. So exactly, uh, we can all be hopeful. Terrific. Great, so let's go to our guest.
0: Our guest today on The Crux is Jeff Demaret who's the vice president of public relations at one of the leading professional service firms in the world, Cognizant. And I would say, you know, Mike and I are both baseball fans. The best way to describe Jeff is that if he were a baseball player, I'd call him a five-tool player, meaning he can do many things. I've seen him up close at GE. Jeff and I worked for many years together in the wars over at GE. Jeff's a great team leader, strong writer, Really good project leader. Most of all, I'd say, really a terrific coach and counselor to senior executives. Those folks are incredibly loyal to Jeff over the years and also just really smart about content, social media, and analytics. And Jeff was my coach on all of those things as he tried to drag a Neanderthal former journalist like me into the modern world. Jeff's work in communications and PR and publishing at NBC. Corporate GE, GE Healthcare, other GE businesses in pharma and tech. If that's not enough, I have often said to some of my friends that Jeff has the best Rolodex in public relations, and I want to talk to him about that. His only weakness, Mike, is only, it's glaring and it's awful.
1: Did he work for you?
0: Well, that's one, (laughs) yes. (laughs) That is definitely, that's definitely one. But he's a Mets and Jets fan. All right. uh, I don't know if either team (laughs) even won a game this year, Jeff. The Mets
2: did win some games. uh, (laughs) The the Jets do have a perfect record as of the taping of this Crux episode. Yeah.
0: So anyway, Jeff, welcome to the Crux.
2: Thank you very much. Thrilled to be here. Thanks, guys.
0: So you joined Cognizant recently. It's a big company, but maybe one that we haven't heard a lot about, a big technology company, a Fortune 200. Tell us about Cognizant and your, your role there.
2: Yeah, well, first of all, it's really funny because, you know, the American dream is you work hard, you make, make your lives better for your children than yourself. A lot of people say, well, and I just got to get out of this town. If I just can get out of this town, I can make it. And I find myself suddenly working at a company that's headquartered in Teaneck, New Jersey, my hometown, uh, which is <laughs> an amazing place. And it uh, was very formative to who I am and how I think about things. But really strange, you know, 25 years plus into my career, I'm working for a, you know, 16 and a half, almost $17 billion company headquartered in Teaneck, New Jersey. So wow. it, it's a strange confluence of events, but here we are. Look, we're, we're a tech services firm. We're a consultancy. Over the years, we had built uh, incredibly close relationships with companies around the world as we help them implement their strategies. We are in the middle of a digital transformation and bringing our clients along with that as well with really big emphasis on we're calling them battleground ground spaces. So cloud, internet of things, digital engineering, artificial mm-hmm. intelligence. I mean, this year alone in 2020, Cognizant through its MA practice, we have purchased a billion dollars of cloud companies. Well, we are really well. serious about this you, you just made
0: one, Jeff, right? You just I just saw you were you just
2: made a purchase,
0: right? The most
2: recent purchase we made was an industrial internet of things company. You know, we're very serious about. Giving our clients the very best technologies, you know, somewhat agnostic and making sure that we bring that all to bear, we integrate it, and we help them achieve their digital goals. So it's a really exciting space. As you know, through my career, I've always had sort of the digital wonky part of my heart. The very first company I worked for was Wiley Computer Publishing. You know, you want to learn how to do PR, try pitching object-oriented ray tracing in C++ by Lendert Amaral. This was the first book I ever had to do publicity. For.
1: Boy, that's sexy. Yeah, it <laughs> yeah. really was. <laughs> it really
2: was. Uh, Lendert himself really loved the book. You, um, you got but, that on the
0: Today Show, right, Jeff? That was. Okay. Uh, well, yeah.
2: but you know, it's sort of, you know, PR is all about the luck of the draw sometimes. The very next that's thing right. I worked on was a book called The Internet Navigator by Paul Gilster. And it went on oh. to be like the number five best selling book about the internet ever. And so you sort of had. The two sides of it, the easy to tell the story and the more technical. And um, that's sort of where how I got where I am today, I guess.
1: So, so what's interesting to me is, is, I mean, lots of great, interesting companies, GE Healthcare, CA, IBM, Amgen, and now Cognizant. Are all of them kind of digital transformation, science-based companies? And what kind of attracted you to these companies?
2: No, actually, you know, I think the common denominator on all the roles I've taken was there was a really chewy communications challenge and I wanted to get in and solve it. Mm -hmm. I've really always enjoyed that. So the company, you know, the different GE businesses, you know, Gary and Beth Comstock and others pointed me in directions that we got to go fix this business. See what you can do to help tell its story, improve its team, pull us out of crisis mode, and get us into proactive storytelling mode.
0: Whenever we had a tough assignment, Jeff's Jeff's name came up. So Erie, Erie Pennsylvania, <laughs> it was like the life
1: <laughs> cereal commercial, except you'd exchange Mike. For, we'll let Mikey. We'll let Jeff eat
0: it. Yeah, <laughs> him <laughs> chewing a few things, absolutely. But he always uh, put his he, hand
2: up. He always he put his hand mass up. Erie, Pennsylvania. They're, All the hot places, right? But you know. I've always gotten really excited about the challenge and and shifting the narrative around the company. Both CA and IBM had their own narrative challenges. CA, very small company, mm-hmm. um, which has since been acquired. IBM, instead of telling the sort of the three stories to telling today, was dozen plus stories on different product lines and how do we realign that? And you know, MGen, I was running corporate reputation, and part of our challenge was we didn't have one. <laughs> we were really well known if you were a stock trader. Uh Or if you were a cyclist, uh, Gary Shepard is the only person I know (laughs) that actually asked for a tour of California shirt. So, you know, it's those type of things. And I think Cognizant is a fascinating place, right? As it's got a new CEO a couple of years ago and and Brian Humphreys, we're going through this new transformation it's our time to shine. So Maybe help our our
1: listeners out a little bit. Who are some of Cognizant's competitors and what are some of the products and services you actually provide?
2: Sure, so historically you would be looking at sort of business process outsourcing type firms like Wipro, Tata, guys like that, Genpact. I think we really see ourselves now moving more towards a Deloitte Accenture space these are formidable competitors, but it is a big space and there's a lot of work that has to be done to help companies mm-hmm. go digital. So, you know, a lot of what we bring to bear is working with big tech companies like Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Salesforce, and helping companies implement their technologies. And sometimes you have to layer them together. You can't just say out of the box is going to work for you. And that's mm-hmm. where cognizant can add real value in making sure that solution works and it's improving and then leveraging the strength of the cloud, trying to take unstructured data and pull that through an AI filter to make sure that you're getting the best information and decision-making. So we spend a lot of our time with clients, helping them improve their processes and strengthen their business.
1: In that space, I think one of the the, the challenges is usually to enable more for a company or for an individual, we're trafficking in lots of bits of information Mm -hmm. Some of that information is highly confidential, private. How does how, how does Cognizant work through all of that for its clientele?
2: Look, yeah, I mean, data security is incredibly important. When you start using the cloud, you know, you're you're taking things off servers and making them multi-location accessible mm-hmm. to your operations around the world. And then when you start leveraging something like artificial intelligence, which there are movies written about scary artificial intelligence, and you really have to step back and say, well, what are you trying to achieve? There's, there's two areas of the storytelling around that that are important. There's the technical side and the emotional side. From a technical perspective, you know, artificial intelligence is amazing in taking unstructured data mm-hmm. and say, how do we make sense of it? And how do we make business decisions off the back of that? You can have all the data in the world you want. But unless you can do something with it, it's just data exhaust. You can't, you can't deliver any business outcomes as a result. And then you want to use that to power something like an Internet of Things. So you understand like an industrial Internet of Things space, is my fleet of healthcare products, uh, I- imaging devices operating as well? Or can I possibly be do- using it to solve bigger problems around the world? And I'll get to that in the emotional a section. So there's a piece of the technology that helps you deliver on the promise of what your company's trying to achieve. And so the technical side, people kind of get it intuitively. But then there's the emotional side. And it, mm-hmm. it's no surprise when you you know pick up your phone, whatever it is, and you've got a Cortana or Siri or Alexa, those are AI personalities, yeah. right? And they are quickly learning about your preferences, helping you get to your kid's soccer game on time, mm-hmm. understanding that you know, you haven't actually paid your bills and you don't want to, you know, have your heat <laughs> go off in the winter, whatever it might be. But it takes to the next level, too. Right. I mean, yeah, it's great that Waze gets you around the traffic jam. But what about doctors right now and the pharma companies that are trying to come up with a vaccine? How do you yep. do that in a world where you can't see patients face to face? How do you do digital clinical trials? How do you then compare that information and share it across a cloud and then load that back into the industrial internet to make sure that you understand that the data that's being collected is the most valuable for driving a business solution? And I think that's once people understand at the personal level, you know, Siri's yeah. their friend,
1: yeah. but
2: they now understand that actually we can conduct, you know, either with clinical trials or make a piece of the technology that's part of their everyday life, operate better, then you have faith that it's gonna happen. So a little bit of the the boogeyman behind the scenes becomes your familiar partner in Mm -hmm. solving problems.
1: Yeah, Mm -hmm. well, in some vein, I can hear the excitement in your voice and and, and it's almost contagious, but, but it's like you're working for a company that's almost like you in the sense that you talked about earlier in your career, how you really love to solve puzzles. And essentially what Cognizant seemingly is doing is taking bits of data, either old data and aggregating it in some way in order to drive a solution. Or in the case of healthcare, where you're looking for that solution, like maybe a special serum or or, or vaccination or whatever, where you can get information from multiple locations and manage it, look at it, make decisions on it fairly quickly.
2: Right. And look, we're in 20 different kinds of industries from banking and capital markets to life sciences, you know, traditional information services, but even oil and gas, retail, transportation, all of these different industries are struggling to how to become more digitally proficient. Some companies are born digital native and they're mm-hmm. ahead. But as you sort of get into this new era of digital 3.0, you got to catch up. And I think that's been complicated by COVID as you've had to like, step away from the factory floor or have your employees away from the workplace. Yeah, exactly. uh, How do you, how do you use this technology to connect? And, and, you know, part of it is connecting your own employees to the workplace. Sure. Part of it is then making them effective partners for clients with whom they're normally embedded.
1: Yeah. It's like moving data to a decision-making tool, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. You're
0: so, much smarter than me on on all of this kind of stuff and you know you know me better than maybe anybody in the world this is a
1: sucker punch watch out exactly
0: (laughs) so (laughs) so you know i've been asking stupid questions about digital and and technology for for a long time and it's it didn't start here today but i'm going to continue that tradition take all of that and pull it into your role yeah. As a leader in communications, in this sense, you know, what is the future of communications? You, Cognizant, and others make digital tools, as Mike says, to take you to the decision point, mm-hmm. whether you're a supply chain leader, whether you're a CEO, etc., cetera. How do these tools help communicators make decisions?
2: Well, you know, if I had a wish list of Cognizant technologies I would put together to help communicators, look, I think the power of AI in what we do for a living has so much potential. You think about the ability to analyze how your message is being delivered globally. What are the threats to your brand? How are certain people talking about you and for good or for evil and understand what pushes their buttons and how do you deliver them the information that's getting the most valuable for their use as well as your own? How do you determine sentiment? Uh, And then how do you activate these key opinion leaders? So, you know, if I were a software engineer or digital engineer and I knew how to do this, I would create a tool for our industry that would very much figure out how to take sort of the traditional online clippings. I can't believe we're even calling online clippings (laughs) traditional anymore. I use the word clippings, so I guess maybe I'm showing my age. But look, I've worked with some great companies like Signal and Brandwatch and others that help us think through what's the information coming through and how do we analyze it? But how do you bolt on a decision-making engine on the back half of that to have me spending less time looking at data to make a decision and have recommendations on how to go activate and then helping my team go deliver in market? Because, you know, I look at charts. I mean, I'm the Dork and Gary's team that had the patent on, you know, measuring data. Well, that's and, right. And outcomes. Yeah. But you got to move beyond that to the value add of OK, so what are you going to do for the company to drive better reputational value? Yeah, so that's I, it, it'll get there. It's you know, so that's on my wish list.
0: That's you know, Jeff, it's it sounds the way you describe it. So simple. And maybe we have a branding problem in communications. We've called it at Page and I and I love the work Page has done in this area, but we call it ComTech and all these other things. Mm-hmm. If you look at the surveys of CCOs and others the people who feel like they're ready to apply digital tools to their roles is very low, right? And, and they think it's expensive. They are intimidated like me <laughs> by, you know, the terminology. So I guess what I'm saying is what skills do we need or do we already have them to break through in, in bringing these tools to a decision point and to get to that analytical, insightful level that you talked about?
2: There's great companies out there that do great work. Yeah. In my last role, I had someone on my team who literally was trying to create the Holy Grail by cobbling together different technologies from different organizations to get that reputation scorecard we've been hoping yeah. for. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think when you step back and you look at it, the analytics, I'm going to go back to your baseball analogy. I yeah. have always been an advocate of sort of the moneyball style of communications. Yeah. Now, what does that mean for the non baseball fans in the audience? Moneyball was a theory that you didn't always have to hit the home run. You didn't always have to be the biggest and greatest Mm -hmm. at what you did in order to succeed. You could succeed by incremental, smaller steps. In baseball, you'd be bunting, you'd be stealing bases. You'd be, you know, you'd find people who performed percentage wise better than average. And you put enough of those things together, you've got some game. So when you're building reputation, First of all, you got to start thinking about, do you have those tools? And they are expensive. I can tell you, I've been a cognizant now this is my 10th week on the job. I just decided this week on a digital platform for analytics. Mm-hmm. First thing I did was to look at who's measuring. And the second thing I'm doing is look, doing an agency review to see who can bolt on and do that. But you start looking at those analytics, then you start worrying less about, can I land the New York Times every day? <laughs> because people don't understand that that doesn't happen as much anymore, even as if it happened regularly at any time in our careers. Um, But then you start bolting together owned media. Do you have a platform to tell your story? Gary, when you and I worked at GE and we did GE reports in the heart of the meltdown, we did it because nobody would listen to us. Suddenly we found we were killing negative media inquiries because of the threat of us being able to tell our own story. Earned media is not going to go away, but maybe we talk about it a little later. I think it's incredibly damaged by the presidential election cycle in the US, as well as other things that are happening, paid. I think we have walked around with our chip on our shoulders for about paid. decades yeah. that paid media is marketing stuff and it's not earned. It doesn't have the value. i tell you what, paid media combined with just placed media, as I call it, which would be as simple as bylined articles and your press release going out. I was never so struck by how far detached I was from leadership as when I was getting emails from the CEO of IBM asking why... Another company had a story in a certain space, turned out it was a Yahoo news alert. Now
1: <laughs> I could explain all day <laughs> why a Yahoo news alert didn't have,
2: have value as we traditionally would have thought about, it. didn't matter. It was influencing a CEO of a hundred billion dollar company.
0: Absolutely. Um,
2: that's news. That's yeah. information that was valuable. And it really was a pivot for myself on then how do we think about this combination of owned, earned, paid and placed and then how do we build our teams around that and put the tools around it so we can make better decisions?
0: I love that money ball analogy. I mean, it, it is. Everybody thinks you got a jacket out of the park, right? Hit a home run every day. And those things are increasingly, unlike baseball, home runs are less less likely these days. The, right. The- and you know where
2: I got that idea from, really, Gary, was sitting in the audience at the consortium mm-hmm. and... The guy from Pepsi who started leading social media for the first Obama campaign. And he t- I don't remember his name, but I remember the discussion. And, you know, that was the beginning of the era of micro contributions. And I started thinking about what if it's micro contributions to the brand bank? And how do we start building that bank of goodwill through a bunch of smaller tactical executions as opposed to always going for the big story? Yeah, build yeah. enough of those. Then it's not like, from a reputation standpoint, you're trying to ride in on a white horse all the time and save the company. Mm -hmm. You've got this bank of goodwill. You can build years worth of reputation with a wide range of external leaders simply by having a lot of it out there, as opposed Mm -hmm. to, you can't make up time until you spend time and job, but you can increase your your breadth of reach by trying a lot of different things. And that's what I try to do.
0: Mike, we used to have a every year with Amex and IBM, J&J, and a bunch of other big companies, something called the Communications Consortium. Oh. And, and we got together for three days and just talked about what was working, what wasn't, that kind of thing. And that's when Jeff refers to the consortium. Yeah.
1: Well, and when you mentioned Obama, two names that come up that I've heard talk about this story are Jim Messina and Jeremy Byrd. I don't know if it was either one of them. But anyway, I'm just curious, has COVID changed You said earlier that certainly you individually are not working in the office. Lots of people aren't working in the office. But has it changed cognizant in terms of how it does work and how it drives business results?
2: Yeah, in a couple of ways, it it absolutely has. First of all, we have 300,000 employees. Mobilizing 300,000 employees to work from home for the foreseeable future is not an insignificant technology lift. The good news is not only were we able to do that, but we were able to actually show our clients that we were doing that. We're eating our own cooking, right? We're going to implement a technology solution that we are actually using ourselves. So I think that helps with our own professional credibility. You know, I think in general, just the business case, there are sectors that performed well, sectors that are not performing as well in this COVID world. You know, there were slowdowns. You could look at you know any company's earnings report, say, well how you doing? We just said that we're going to be at higher end of our guidance for 2020. Why is that? Because people are moving to digital and they need companies like Cognizant and Cognizant helps specifically to help them get there. You know, there's an opportunity to help companies become digital. Mm -hmm. It is very much what we're about. You know, our, we talk about our purpose at Cognizant is to engineer modern businesses to improve everyday life. That engineering piece is deeply embedded in the digital world. And I think COVID has accelerated that for us.
1: Well, and it was interesting. I kind of followed the story in terms of, you know, when Frank D'Souza came up with the idea for the company, uh, he turned out to be not just a great founder, but also a damn good CEO. And then in 2019, of course, Brian Humphreys Ascends to this role to succeed, Frank, and, and that's a tough act to follow. Yeah, you know, using your your money ball analogy, <laughs> you know, it's 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 hard to get or a higher slugging percentage or <laughs> uh, or a better on base percentage. What do you account for? What we see in Cognizant today, I mean, it's one of the best places to work on a lot of different lists. You guys seemingly are continuing to grow, continuing to change the industries that you're working with. What's the secret sauce here?
2: You know, first of all, I think Brian's an incredibly smart guy, Um, very sharp, very close to clients. And look, he's had to leave a pivot here, Where, you know, the company that Frank ran very much in the professional services space has morphed to a more digital world. And so, as I mentioned earlier, so that we've made eight acquisitions this year in the digital space. So he's had to pivot the business. He's had to pivot business leadership to have people with the right tools to succeed in the digital world. I also think that a really important part of the company's culture, really leading with, uh, we call it the Cognizant Agenda, but a leaning in methodology, thinking about not only do we want from a business case to be like the preeminent technology partner for the Fortune 2000. That's like a business goal. But we want to strengthen digital. We want to strengthen our core businesses. We want to, you know, transform the commercial model. We want to really take charge of talent and supercharge it around the world, get more global. One of our key initiatives is to enhance our reputation. And so you start thinking about those things and employees get excited that they have a voice in that they can make a change. You know, we've got some exciting branding opportunities coming up in the next year or so. We've got, you know, other things to just bring employees along. So as they see the world changing and they see the really exciting moves that Brian and the leadership team have put in place, you can imagine your own role in making those changes for yourself, for our clients and you know the, the broader effect around the world. So, you know, the one thing about cognizant that you have to know is a lot of companies say they're customer centric. Cognizant by far any company I've encountered takes that to another level. The level of service, what we're willing to do for clients, take on tough problems, help them solve them. And so that just gets better when you give them better tools, particularly when you start to get about AI, digital engineering, you know, internet things, cloud. Bringing those new technologies to bear to make them even better—that's what gets people excited, and they want to show up for work every day. I think that's reflected not only in those external numbers, but we have a multi-year high on our internal employee surveys. People are really excited to be here.
0: That's great. Well, so you're talking about talent, Jeff, and and so I'll continue the baseball theme here today. (laughs) You know, even though you were a soccer player, right? You know. you play, oh, yeah, that's true. Heifel, yeah, yeah. yeah, so whenever we had a job open at GE, you'd be the first guy I'd called, and even subsequently, right, when looking for talent, and it's not a skill we talk about a lot in communications, this idea of being a scout for talent, like in baseball, mm-hmm. and there are people who have an eye for it, and you can see some organizations in baseball that clearly do not, and I won't mention one Terrible. that-
1: <laughs> plays plays in Queens,
0: but anyway, what's the key to being a good recruiter in communications?
2: Well, first of all, I think you have to be honest with yourself on what the table stakes of skills you need to bring in, and you have to constantly reassess that. You know, Cognizant had walking in the door what I would call not from a talent perspective, but from a philosophy perspective, very traditional trajectory on what we did. We did pure media relations we were at an announcement shop, mm-hmm. right? Something would happen, we would announce it, and then we would move on.
0: Yeah. transactional uh, and
2: it, Right. It very transactional. And on the flip side, you actually see a very, very healthy section of the marketing organization doing thought leadership. In part, that was the only story we could tell that was proactive because it was sort of like you could pick it up and run with it globally. So when you start thinking about talent in general, it's what's happening and what's changing. And reach into your back, pocket and talk to old friends that knew a lot of things, ask them what's happening and who you might talk to. Literally this week, I talked to David Lurie, who is an old <laughs> GE guy who's oh, yeah. doing incredibly well at Taneo. You know, he's the guy that was telling us all we should be doing podcasts. And look <laughs> at us now. We're on yeah. a podcast. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I reached out to <laughs> Dom McMullen, who came from Brunswick Group, and I hired him to be my crisis communications guy at GE Healthcare. These are the guys I'm asking, who who do they know for talent? Right. You know, people who are going to jump in and think through that new model of communications, that money ball combined with own, earn, paid and placed. Who can do these things? Who brings those skill sets? And then it's just having a lot of conversations. You know, I think I, she's been on your air. Helene Klaski is among the best recruiters of talent I've ever met. Yeah. And yes. why? Because she's always recruiting. Right. And that's something I learned from her and I try and do as well. So, you know, I'm notoriously bad at looking at things happening in my LinkedIn inbox, but people find me eventually and um, we start having conversations. Look, I almost got a job once out of something on my LinkedIn box. I can be better at making sure I'm looking at all the data sources. I need I need a good AI assistant. To help uh, me. Totally, <laughs> exactly.
1: Well, that's, uh, I, I
0: love that idea that, you you know, the war for talent from a leadership standpoint in communications, Is maybe the most important thing you do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And big global organizations like you're in right now, because you're going to need good people everywhere. Mm -hmm. We don't spend a lot of time talking about it, but thinking of yourself as an always on recruiter, I think, is a great mindset.
2: And I think the other thing you just have to be really aware of is where's the business going? And are you recruiting to where it's going, not where it is? You know, one of the big things that we talk about in the Cognizant agenda is globalizing the company, globalizing Cognizant. We're you know, 70 plus percent, I think 75 percent revenues out of the U.S. right now. And that will change. And as a result, you have to think about, OK, do I put a big player in this country or do I look to where that's going and try and hire for generations forward? You know, like I said earlier, we were a very traditional shop in regards to an announcement shop. You know, very transactional. And to be honest, actually, we were very much a corporate communication shop. We had a lot of crises we dealt with, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, very effective in that space, but it's hard to be proactive when you're only doing crises. But I sit within a broader marketing organization. My boss, Gaurav Chand, has actually pulled through, you know, one of those, I would say he ripped out of Harvard Business School best in class style of marketing organizations, you know, really soup to nuts from people thinking about messaging to execution on the tail end. We don't have people currently positioned to help the product lines, the product offerings tell their stories. Yeah, exactly. Um, We leave that to the regions only. You really have to think about: okay, if you can take on the challenge of telling the story better, are you looking where the story's going, or are you hiring for today? And I think a lot of people they have a vacancy and they fill it in kind. And I think you always have to look at how that job is changing. Yep. Yeah. And. It's not necessarily an upgrade of person. I think that's a lousy way of looking at it. It's mm-hmm. a what are the skill set you bring? Capabilities. There yeah. For, yeah. Yeah. The capabilities and where it's going. They're not going to be bored in six months, or yeah. 12 months. They've got a runway to go do exciting
1: things for your company. Yeah, I had a CEO one time who's, who said, what you want to do is hire up. And he meant that yeah. in terms of sequencing where the future is going to be, but also how can I improve upon what I've had there? Not that I'm critical of what was there. It's just, this is an opportunity.
0: Right. Well, you know, I've said, I've told this many times to students and others, Mike, is that my performance reviews with the C- CEO was often on an airplane and he would just grill me on the team. He wouldn't say gary great strategy here or here or here but when you're selling in 170 countries or whatever we were he wanted to know i had a good person in china i had a good person in russia etc etc and and course. that was all he asked me about with relationship to my performance
1: well yeah. one of the things that certainly has had an impact on people everywhere is that we've just had a really crazy 2020. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, there's no, no two ways about it. I mean, you start thinking about COVID, you think about politics, you think about the protests during the summer related to George Floyd, now a new administration coming in, lots of challenges across the globe. Has 2020 fundamentally changed communications? And what lessons do you think come out of all of this? for those of us as we look to 2021?
2: There are certain things that may never return to the way they were. I think the role of traditional media was so badly damaged through this presidential campaign. And, and in part, the hand flapping in regards to COVID response and those sort of things, as opposed to digging deep and getting the right answers. You know, I my last job at at MGen was all about corporate reputation. And look, I, I did studies like everybody else, you know, a couple of years ago, the pharmaceutical industry had the lowest reputation ever measured by Gallup. Yes, <laughs> of any you industry. Yeah. yeah, and suddenly it's at the top of the heap. So, you know, you have to, first of all, look and say, okay, so how did the reputation get there? Well, that's by business behavior. And how is it, how did it change by hope for the future? So what does that mean? Trust in technical voices. You know, getting the right people with the right language, people like us. This is not a surprise. That's why social media is important because it's people like us. So when you are trying to tell a company story, it's people like us who then can tell a story through a channel that is not going to come in with an inherent bias. And what does that mean? Well, It's actually funny because the inherent bias becomes the company's voice. And you have to think through, how do you use paid? How do you find your own platform? Because newsrooms are shrinking. If we still think it bleeds, it leads is the mantra for current newsrooms. How are you going to get helpful information out unless it's salacious? Mm -hmm. And so I think the trust in technical voices has risen to the point. The trust in company leadership to take us out of a crisis has Mm -hmm. gotten bigger than ever. And then really from communications practitioner standpoint, PR in particular, is if you're waiting for another feature to save you and tell your company's story, you're kidding yourself. You are, you know, 20 years behind the game in one year's timeframe. It's just not going to happen anymore. Owned media, public relations traditionally is always going to have a place. It's an important part of the machine, but it can no longer be the number one way you tell a story. You really have to think more like a marketer, a full market basket of how you tell your story. And if people didn't get it for 2020, they do now.
0: Great. Great. Well, Jeff, this has been fantastic. I think our listeners can see how deeply you think about these issues. Maybe not about some other things, you know, going on, <laughs> decisions you've made. But Well, the Jets play the Patriots tonight, if you want to yes. time
2: mark this podcast. So <laughs> yeah, I, I'm still God. hoping for a perfect record. Yeah, you
1: uh, might.
0: I don't know. Those Patriots aren't what they used to If they're be. ever going to beat
1: the Patriots, this is the year, it looks like. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> and listen, thank you for being on. You're going to get a in the mail a nice Crux t-shirt. Nice. And, and I want you to walk, next time you're able to go into the office, walk around your hometown, Teanac, New Jersey, with the Crux t-shirt on very proudly, and tell people that you were on this illustrious
2: podcast. I, I am um, humbled by the bright lights in front of me.
1: And <laughs> I'm glad that I can wear your label
2: and brand when I enter my own. So thank you very much for having me. It was a blast. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for being Thanks, on the Crux. Jeff. Thanks, guys.
0: Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.